0: Just what does it take to get two of college football's best teams on the field at the same time?
1: I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Thomas Bradley. This is After the Score.
0: do after the score 89.7's weekly look at sports. I'm Steve Brown here with Thomas Bradley. This week we'll hear from a former Cincinnati Bengal who wrote a book to help him remember his family in case his memory fades even more.
1: Steve and I will also give our thoughts on a former Buckeye and NFL rookie who's still holding out for his very first contract. The latest NFL labor deal was supposed to eliminate situations like this but Here we are. But first, we're just about a week away from the start of the Ohio State football season, and this one is going to be a little different. It's the first year where Ohio State and all of the other Big Ten teams are going to play nine conference games. Nine. Here to talk about that with us is Martin Jarman. He's the Deputy Athletic Director at Ohio
0: State, and he is in charge of football scheduling. Good to have you back on the program, Martin.
2: Great to be back, Steve. What's going on, brother?
0: You are, man. So why move to nine conference games?
2: Big Ten wanted a more competitive schedule. Uh, allows us to, to really be strong with nine. Not everybody in the country and the Power Five is doing nine conference games. Um, and it's something I think our fans will be more excited about, too, to to see another Big Ten game instead of um, some of the other games that we had on the schedule. You say the Power Five. Those are the, the, the top five conferences. What are the other four? Uh, the ACC, uh, the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the SEC.
1: And so you said it's moved – toward more conference games to add a little bit of competitive edge, but some would argue that some of some of the Big Ten games are lesser opponents than maybe we could go out and schedule. We, I, I know right off the bat this year, Ohio State has Oklahoma in the early season, and there's not going to be a game like that until we get to a Michigan State or a Michigan later in the season. Is this to help some of the smaller Big Ten schools schedule those bigger games, or is this to help the, the bigger Big Ten schools schedule more competitive games?
2: No, that's a great point. Uh, It all comes down to the scheduling philosophy for each school, for each institution. Uh, At Ohio State, we want to compete for a national championship. We want to compete for a Big Ten championship every year. So in order for us to do that, we have a scheduling strategy. It wouldn't be realistic for us to play – Oklahoma and then two other top five teams as our three non conference games. Just that's for just... just
0: for fear of losing. No I don't I don't I don't want sugarcoat it, no offense, uh, but for fear of losing games. N- not
2: necessarily fear of losing, but that's I mean, you're talking about injuries, you're talking about the challenge yeah. of a game. That that is just the challenge. And the system that we're in right now, as you guys know, we we were one of the best teams, if not the best team in the country last year. We lose one game, we don't play in the playoff. Right. So it's not worth the risk reward to, to schedule in that kind of manner. Um, so where the Big Ten going to nine games helps is we always like to do a top ten traditional power. And that's Oklahoma for this year. Uh, it'll be Oregon in the future. It'll be Texas, Notre Dame. But Oklahoma is it this year. And the other games that you usually surround around that are not schools that are in the top 25 or most of the time not even in the top 50. So now instead of one of those type schools, you're going to get a Big Ten game. So that makes our schedule more attractive, our strength of schedule more attractive, uh and the quality of opponent will be stronger, so that's something that your fans would rather pay to see you play a big ten matchup instead of uh one of the other and schools These
0: schools said that these big ten schools have bigger alumni bases, presumably better- nationwide t v ratings
2: correct correct, and they're and they're stronger they're they have more tradition uh so that's that's one of the main reasons why you go to the nine game. Uh, and, and I understand your point about the Oklahoma, yeah. but the reality is we wouldn't schedule three Oklahomas sure. in a year. Um, actually, the, we are out, I think, scheduled Notre Dame, Texas, and Boston College in a year, and we did that before all of this changed. So mm-hmm. uh, that's going to be a challenge in itself.
1: Uh, the, the formula you mentioned seems to be working. If you If you look at Ohio State, and if they go undefeated, there's no doubt in anyone's mind that they're going to make the playoffs. But if you look at a team last year like Iowa, who was going undefeated for most of the season, and people were like, well, are they a good team? They don't have a very good schedule. Their, their non-conference schedule was weak. Their conference schedule was weak. And they made it to the Big Ten Championship game, lose to Michigan State. So there's got to be that fine line you've got to tiptoe across between making it too hard to go undefeated and making a schedule too easy.
2: Scheduling, you're exactly right. Scheduling is an exact science. Uh, Iowa, what they did is they put themselves in a position, if they would have beat Michigan State, to get to the playoff, and quite frankly, people forget, no matter how hard or challenging your schedule is, it is hard to win week in and week out every game. That, that is really hard to do, uh, especially in football with injuries and emotion, and you're talking about 18- to 21-year-old kids. Uh, that's, that's hard. So uh, it is an exact science. Uh, you do have to schedule strong, but you also have to give yourself a chance, realistically, to try to get as far as you can unscathed. Uh, because that's going to be most attractive, as we've seen in the two years of the the college football playoff.
0: I know this is the first year of going to nine conference games, but does that kind of seem like the sweet spot? Is there any way you could go to 10?
2: I I like, me personally speaking, this is not on anybody else in the Big Ten, I like nine games. I I think it is a sweet spot. I think that when you have three non-conference, it allows for a major kind of opponent, just like Oklahoma, uh, it also allows for a game where you try to play maybe something with regional ties, like a MAC school that we yeah, play. in Bowling Green. In Bowling Green we're playing this year, opening up, which is great for the state of Ohio. Right. Uh, and then you have one more game where you can kind of do something with. So to me, I, I like that because it fits into Ohio State's scheduling philosophy. Ten games, that's that's really tough. That's really tough. You'd have to make some really hard decisions on how you're going to schedule those that's, two that's games. That's crazy that one
0: game makes such a big difference.
2: Huge. Huge difference. Huge yeah. difference. Well, it's, yeah, it's a number
1: of teams scheduling a different sure. game. Yeah, it's a nationwide
0: out. metric with all these teams flying everywhere. And-
1: how, how much um, work do you guys do with the Big Ten Conference to schedule those games? Do you let them know availability and stuff like that? And do they work with every school pretty intensely?
2: Yes, uh, that's a great question. We work hand-in-hand with the Big Ten Conference. So typically they send out a schedule of everyone's schedule and, and the dates you have in the future. So we send it back to say that is accurate. Sometimes they have a mistake. They might have something that was on there from before, uh, and it's not accurate anymore. Um, but but typically, when I'm looking to schedule someone or I'm getting close, I'll call Martin Rudner at the Big Ten office, and I'll say, you know, Mark, this is who we're looking at uh, and this date. Because you always want to make sure the Big Ten is not thinking that date for— something else or a conference game or something like that. Part of the 9 game schedule if you if you guys remember that we went to in the Big 10 is we allow for early conference games. I think in 17 we're playing Indiana first game of the season or mm. 18, 17 or 18, can't remember which one right now. So now you have to make sure you coordinate with the Big 10 office beforehand because they may say well we're actually have something you know in the schedule that we haven't sent out to schools sure. yet. That has you playing in that first week or that second window.
1: I remember five, maybe six years ago. I think it was Halloween. Ohio State played San Diego State in mm-hmm. the middle of the season. Mm-hmm. With the move to nine conference games, is that the end of a mid-season non-conference game, or was that kind of the end of, of that trend, or or th- that it well, was not a trend, just an anomaly, I guess.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I I think every situation is different. You probably won't see that as much. Um, just because you, you like to get in a groove once you're in the season and the conference, it, it's it's disruptive somewhat. Um, I know the SEC has been doing it for years as far as they play like a FCS school. Yeah, they play a real small school uh, in the middle of Mississippi you know, or Alabama or something like that. But they've that. been doing it for years. Yeah. You know, that's their pattern. So I think the Big Ten, our pattern is, is once we get going in conference, you kind of want to stay in conference and keep that going.
0: How tough is it? How big of an undertaking is it to schedule a game like Oklahoma? I mean, is it? Is it months of back and forth? Is it years of back and forth? How long does something like that take?
2: You know, it's interesting. It all depends on the school. Uh, Oklahoma, first of all, if you have a relationship, the athletic directors have a relationship, it makes it a lot easier. I can tell you Joe Castiglione, Oklahoma, and Gene Smith, they're, they're top five ADs in the country, and they're very good friends. So that was very easy. Because, Even though the
0: schools haven't, pl- they haven't played in decades,
2: right? Correct. But they, they're very good friends. So that was easy. They've both been on the men's basketball committee together. Uh, so, so that becomes easier when you don't have a relationship. Not that it can't get done, but it, it's it's more of a challenge. Um, and then you know this one was fast. Whereas Oregon, that took that took all of a year because of the back and forth with TV, with the contract, with different particulars. Um, and I love Oregon; they were great, but they were very particular about everything. And as you know, once you get lawyers involved in contract. We knew we wanted to play, but it was just well, we're you know it, we yeah, business stuff. It was business then, and and it took a long time. And that it usually does not take a year, but like Oregon, that took a year. And you had to
0: find uh, a replacement school to fill in for North Carolina when that agreement um, was dissolved. Um, but that that fell in place pretty quickly.
2: Yes, we we had to find someone, uh, and in in scheduling terms, you usually like right now. I'm calling schools for 2021. I mean, yes. that's 2020, oh. 2021. So usually you have a four to six year window where you're trying to secure games. We had a, a hole in our schedule. So like in scheduling terms, that is like yesterday. Like-, <laughs> like I was losing sleep, not because of my one year old daughter. I was losing sleep because we didn't have a football opponent for 2017. So uh, and then it becomes musical chairs, less inventory, less people have sure. the same date available. So we secured Tulane, which was great because uh, not only did we did we have the challenge of getting the game, but Tulane is a name-brand school. People know Tulane. People know New Orleans. So that was uh, – and we, we haven't played them, I, I, I want to say, maybe only once or twice. Um, and so that was something new, and that was like a win-win. But that was a challenge because uh, I probably talked to over 15 to 20 schools. You know, it just wouldn't work. Either the date wasn't working or they didn't want to play Ohio State. You probably have
0: some, some juice when you call people on the phone, right? You're from Ohio State's athletic department. You're you're kind of a big deal when you call.
2: <laughs> you know, I, you're
0: it's kind of power, You're kind
2: of a power broker in the industry. You're, you know, it's funny. It's all it's all relative because someone looks at it like, Ohio State, we don't want any part of them. You yeah. know, and so actually it's a bad thing. I, I, there are so many that we couldn't even get. Pass the letter go or the letter A because we don't want to play Ohio State. That's yeah. you know, um, and then some are, are are flattered that you called and they they want to talk about other things. And it's like no, I, I really. What do you think about playing us in football? But then reality and so, kicks in, and they, they're like wanna, oh, I yeah. don't know about they that. <laughs> and and they want to play you in fencing. They something. Yeah, else. They do. They want to play you in something else. It's <laughs> sure, so, volleyball tournament. It's really interesting. You never, I never know what I'm going to get. But but with 17, I even I even reached out to some of the conference commissioners to tell them we had a game available, a date available. Do you know someone that's interested? Because it's re- a lot of it's relationships and just knowing who and yeah. you know uh, Tulane had a new athletic director. I had called Tulane before the previous athletic director. Wasn't interested in playing us. I saw they got a new athletic director. I just said, you know what, let me give him a call again. He was interested. There you go. You know, so that really, again, that's new leadership. They want to give their kids an opportunity to come to Columbus and play a game. So that was great.
0: Martin Jarmond is the deputy athletic director at Ohio State, and he is also in charge of football scheduling. Martin, you have a really neat job, and it's always good to talk to you.
2: Thank you. Love being here.
0: Former tight end for the Cincinnati Bengals has written a book that he hopes will be a keepsake in case his memory fades even more. Ben Utec says he experienced five documented concussions and probably many more. He's written a book documenting his struggles with memory loss. It's called Counting the Days Until My Mind Slips Away, A Love Letter to My Family. And he joins us now. Ben, thanks for your time
3: thanks for having me, guys.
0: You say this book is a keepsake, a way to preserve your memories before they fade away. Just how serious is your memory loss?
3: Well, I would say that that uh, anytime you know you, you kind of go into your past and significant moments are gone it's it's significant and that that's happened to me you know a couple of handfuls of times, unfortunately, um, one example that I talk about in the book is sitting across from one of my former teammates in college. And we were talking about uh, you know our our weddings, and I, I interrupted and said you know you know why wasn't I able to be at yours? And like my wife and his wife they you know laughed it off as sarcasm, and I said no seriously why wasn't I able to be there? And she uh, his wife got up and brought over their wedding album, on page after page there I was as a Grimsman and a singer in his wedding, and didn't matter how many times I looked at the photos, I mean it's it's just not there, it's completely gone. I can't. I can't find it. I can't place it. And, you know, so th- those were some of the, ch- you know, those were some of the uh, moments um, that I think gave my wife and I, you know, you know, concern. Um, and a part of the, you know, obviously a big reason as is, is to why I'm I'm writing the book.
1: Your memory at one point, your short-term memory and long-term memory were down to in the teens, near the mm-hmm. single digits. How is your, how's your memory now? How are you testing now?
3: Well, thank you. That's a great question because um, – the the book it has a has a hope message to it, and the way that it ends, just you know, is, is the story that, that you just brought up here. And and I I, I did a hundred hour um, intensive brain training program this last year, and my neuropsych evaluation showed that my short long term memory were in the twelfth and seventeenth percentile, um, and I'm happy to say that after a hundred hours my post evaluation results were that my short long-term went to the 78th and 90th percentile. And so there's been some really miraculous, um, some miraculous healing over the last year. And I feel, um, I feel like today there's, there's hope that what I've done is I've created new pathways to store memory better going forward. It doesn't mean that I'll be able to retrieve memory from the past and from the concussions that happened, but, going forward now and as a dad of four four girls you know that's a that's really important um, hope for me
0: it sounds like there is some hope in your story this is still pretty terrifying I I only played football until high school and I certainly wasn't as good as you but I I can remember getting hit pretty hard and having to sit out a few plays and you know I'm the same age as you back then they called it getting your bell rung but Mm -hmm. I, I could have really been doing serious harm to myself and 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 we don't know how these things are going to progress later in life. You and I are only thirty five years old. What's going to happen when we're sixty and seventy?
3: And honestly, I think that's that's the spirit that the book was written in. Um, you know that the title is um, is kind of a shocking title, but I think what you have to understand is that's the first line of the song that I wrote. And and so um, even though it has this sense of inevitability, I think well, you know what what. What what is what is written out of just a reality that you know I, I, you and I watch and we look at these guys that are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s that have been a, you know impacted by years of of playing and concussions and I I think it's a reality for me to say like you know what what am I going to be like at that age and and so the book I think is written vulnerably out of out of some of those fears. I want to go back and
1: talk about the intensive brain therapy you've been going through. I think most people have either heard of or seen the movie Concussion or the Frontline series on concussions that chronicles Mm -hmm. the beginning of Mike Webster and CTE. Mm -hmm. And and talk talk about this this therapy. Is this supposed to help post-football life? Is this something that hasn't been around back then and is coming to the forefront now in therapy?
3: Well, you know, what I like about this, because I've I've been skeptical of a lot of, you know, I mean, there's supplements and there's, um, you know, and there's uh, chiropractic and neurofeedback and all this stuff. But what what, uh, made sense to me about this was that it was just like working out with a trainer at a gym. I mean, I sat across from the table four days a week for an hour and a half at a time, uh, across from a brain trainer, and uh, who just put me to work. And it was hard, and I was sweating. There was lots of frustration, um, but he kept on me. He kept pushing me, and I kept working these memory exercises over and over and over. And after months of doing that, like the the increase um, was tremendous. And any neuro- a neurologist will tell you that you know um, when you train your cognitive abilities, you will improve them. I mean, the brain is a as a very plastic and and um, you know very plastic and moldable um, part of who you are, and so I think that that's something that um, needs to be done a lot more today, and and hopefully you know companies like the one that I worked with is are, are going to excel in that.
0: Tom, Thomas mentioned CTE. That's a really, really horrible condition that's brought on by repeated concussions. It has come to, to to the forefront in recent years with several recent professional football players saying they have CTE. Do you know if you have CTE?
3: Well, I, I'm uh, I I stick pretty close to what is medical evidence. I think that that's that is I think very important um, for anyone to do in this situation and cte cannot be diagnosed in a living person it's it's a posthumous uh, diagnosis you know and so i i can't i can't say for certainty whether i do or i don't um but uh, obviously you know memory um is affected with cte and i've and i've had some of those memory issues so i you know with the percentages of autopsied brains in the nfl that are there. It's like 97, 98%. I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you answer that question based on, on those percentages, um, I would not be surprised if, if, um, if that is maybe a diagnosis I face in the future.
1: You mentioned earlier when you were writing the book, you were looking at old photos and learning about stories about yourself. What, what was that like essentially doing research on your own life, things you've experienced? Was that kind of an out of body experience?
3: That was an eerie experience. I, I remember um, one time, you know, vividly when that happened during the process of writing where, you know, I'm reading through and editing a chapter and I read this story about, you know, my first major injury in high school where I fractured my hip and uh, I read this emotional story about my mom, you know, fighting her way out of the stands and sprinting out onto the football field and pushing her way through teammates and coaches to you know to get on the ground with me and just and support me and remind me of where my faith lied and and I'm I'm sitting there reading this going what is this you know and I called I called the writer and I said where did you know I don't Remember telling you this? What? Where did you get this? Well, I, you know, I got this when I interviewed your mom, and I said, "Gosh, I have no, I have no memory of that." And even even talking to you about it, and reading it in detail, like I don't, I don't actually have no memory of that of her actually doing that. So it's just strange.
0: You have suffered memory loss because of football. It also brought you wealth. You've had an extremely interesting life. You've written a book. Uh, It's the reason you're talking to us right now. would you do it all over again if you had the chance?
3: You know, I, I I have no regrets for playing, and I would play again. I would do it differently. I would probably make some better decisions. I don't know if, how long, you know, if I would have played after that third or fourth. I don't. I don't know if you know. I, I'd like to think that my decision making would have been, you know, would be different. Um, but again, I just I, I really try and find as much of a balance as I can to. To um, you know, to to be a pro brain, pro game message.
1: And what would you like the NFL, college football, high school football, football across every levels, to do to to fix this problem? What what needs to happen to keep football as we know it and to minimize the risk to brain
3: injury? Well, look, I mean, when you get into the NCAA and, and the NFL, you're dealing with adults, um, and so five years ago. I would have said that they need to have the full assumption of risk. They need to know everything about concussions, and, and I think today we are getting to that point. And 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 so um, once once every athlete understands the full assumption of risk, under, understands concussions and the possible long term effects, and they choose to play, then it comes down to um, are the organizations that represent these players are they taking care of their long-term health and so that's still one area that I think we could have some improvement in I mean um, guys get insurance for five years after they leave the NFL and then it goes away and so I think if we can find a a way to um, to you know ensure former players especially with their long-term health I think then then as fans, we can sit back and say, OK, you know, they're doing everything they can to take care of these guys. So now, you know, if these guys want to play, then we'll support them in playing.
0: In the American sports landscape, football is is pretty unique in, in the level of violence that it takes to, to play the game and to be good at it. Uh, you do have four daughters. Would, would you like them to play contact sports?
3: Well, thankfully, my wife was a captain of the golf team in college and a tennis player. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to do it every can to, mm-hmm. you know, encourage them in that in that, uh, regard, but obviously, you know, in, in the state of hockey, uh, here in Minnesota, along with, uh, soccer, I mean, they're going to have opportunities, uh, lacrosse and rugby. So, um, I, I I'm i I'll be a pretty conservative, uh, decision maker on, on their participation uh, in those sports and when their participation would be. Um, but again, um, athletics are so important, uh, to, you know, to, to our culture, and I think it's it's something we've got to keep working to to find that balance.
0: Ben, as you mentioned earlier, you did write a song about your struggles with memory loss. It's called You Will Always Be My Girls. We're going to close with that song. Ben Utak is a former tight end for the Cincinnati Bengals. He suffered memory loss because of several concussions, and he's written a new book about his struggles called Counting the Days Until My Mind Slips Away, A Love Letter to My Family. Ben, we, we really do wish you well, and, and thanks again for taking some time out to talk to us. Thanks, you guys. So, there's a really weird situation playing out in San Diego right now. Former Ohio State defensive lineman Joey Bosa, drafted number three overall in last spring's draft by the San Diego Chargers, is the only player who is
1: still holding out. He hasn't signed a contract. He hasn't played a preseason game. He hasn't been to a team workout. He probably hasn't been to the facility too much. He might not even be in San Diego. He is not. Does he
0: know where San Diego is?
1: I think it does. He probably has about as good idea where I know. It's Southern California, yes, I assume. It's like yeah. nice weather or something. It's, it's better than Ohio from what I hear. He is in a situation right now where the San Diego Chargers and Joey Bosa, the third overall pick in the draft, are arguing about a couple of words, and it's called offset language. Offset language means he's guaranteed a contract for four years through his rookie deal. If the Chargers were to cut him before those four years, they would want – the next team who picks him up to pay some of that guaranteed money. Joey Boso would like a completely new contract in addition to the money already guaranteed by the Chargers. Right, he
0: wants to double dip if he is signed by someone else after the Chargers cut him.
1: Which it it isn't an unreasonable request if you really want the franchise you're playing for to invest in you. You don't want your franchise to cut you after a couple of years, especially if you're the third overall pick. If you're supposed to be a franchise player, if you're supposed to be a – Defensive end playmaker, you're going to be there for a while, so this probably won't ever be an issue. But Joey wants to make sure that it's not going to be an issue. He wants more money, and I, you know, and, I, but I, he might not ever get that more money. He just wants the the penalty for them cutting him to be worse. He wants the protections in case he is. He wants more money, and yeah, he
0: probably does. He probably would want to stick it to the charges if they cut him. And I, I'm really astonished at the people who take the owner's side in this issue. I mean, Bosa players get so little leverage when they're dealing with nfl owners and I, I i pretty much support the players in almost all instances in this they can be cut just about at any time if, if bosa does turn out to be a bus the chargers can can nearly wash their hands of them at least, you know they, they're billionaire owner it's not going to be a big deal i don't understand why people
1: get mad that joey bosa wants this money it's hard to take the side of a millionaire athlete but it's even harder to take the side of a billionaire owner. And and when comparing the two, you you will always side with the athlete, especially when the organization, San Diego Chargers, come out in a press release and say things like, Joey Bosa is jeopardizing his career. He won't play all 16 games. He's done this, that, and the other to jeopardize this contract. We've done everything we can. They They turn to the media. They turn to the public to turn this into – a media battle this is this should be a professional contract negotiation and I think the San Diego Chargers have really messed that up and the Chargers
0: have a history of this the uh, Joey Bosa's mom indicated they should have quote pulled an Eli Manning who was drafted by the Chargers and refused to play for them yeah they demanded a trade on so, draft day. some of the best players in Chargers history have held out so I, I have no sympathy to the Chargers in this <laughs>
1: And that will do it for this week's episode of After the Score. You can find an archive of old episodes at WOSU.org slash After the Score or using the WOSU Public Media mobile app. Be sure to tune in this time next week for a
0: full preview of next Saturday's OSU season opener against Bowling Green. Until then, I'm Steve Brown. And
1: I'm Thomas Bradley.